0: Hi, welcome to the 12th house podcast. I'm Michelle Pelazon, your host in the Headwitch in Charge here at Holisticism. And I am delighted that you're here with us this week. Hi, how's it going? Oh, I am so excited about today's episode. I've been stalking Jessica DeFino on Instagram for an embarrassingly long amount of time. And honestly, we kind of put her as like a dream guest (laughs) on, on the podcast episodes. And when Wallace reached out and asked her if she'd be down and she said yes, the way that I screamed, I swear to God. But this episode's so good. It does not disappoint. I wanted to talk to Jessica for so many reasons, just obviously because I'm a fan. And I think she's infinitely interesting and such an excellent writer and a real firebrand. I wouldn't use that word for most people. And I love that about her, especially what she's doing in the beauty space. And during this series, we're talking about showing up in the wellness industry and going against the grain. And what does it look like to to not go with what everyone expects you to do and how everyone expects you to be and not just sort of toe the party line, but also not be... (laughs) I don't know, a shit starter, just to start shit, right? How to be in integrity with yourself and also interact in an industry that you love and also have problems with and you want to act differently within. And I think Jessica does such a great example of that, of being in and of the beauty industry while also being critical of it in the way that only someone who really loves it can. And I think that's really cool. And we talk about so much in this episode. We talk about why anti-aging is like basically anti-living and how when skincare companies and makeup cosmetics companies talk about anti-aging, it's super problematic. Jessica has so much to say about this. We talk about Jessica's experience working with the Kardashian-Jenner's and their apps and being a writer for their content and how that actually put her on this path to be this sort of rebel beauty industry insider. We talk about how Jessica deals with criticism on the internet because that's one thing, you guys, when you say shit, when you disagree with people, there's gonna be a a lot of voices that don't like that and who are gonna come for you. And I'm always so impressed when people hold their ground and maintain integrity for themselves, even when they're getting criticized by the masses. And I think Jessica has really been through it in so many ways. And what she has to say about this is so interesting. Her work has appeared on Vogue, The Cut, in The Zoe Report, Fashionista.com, Marie Claire, Self Business Insider. She's amazing. She also has an awesome substack. You have to just get on it. It's called The Unpublishable. It's fantastic. So this episode I hope you love and I hope you love Jessica as much as I love and adore her a couple things housekeeping stuff this is the very last week you can get your 30-day trial for open open is a meditation and mindfulness app and a place to come home to yourself it is delightful they have been our sponsor for the last couple of weeks and we just love them and if you haven't already redeemed your 30 days for free what you doing kid get on it. If you're like me, you have ADHD, you're putting it off to the last minute. Guess what? It's the last minute. It's time to do it. So go to the link in our show notes or just go to open.com or o-p-e-n.com backslash holisticism and you'll be able to redeem your 30 days for free super fun. And as always, if you rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and you send us a screenshot of your review, we'll be entered to win our monthly raffle. And this month we are raffling off one spot in our Notion for Magical Baddies Systems and Spells class in October. It's going to be so much fun. I can't wait for you to join us. And I can't wait for the doors to open. I can't wait to teach this class again. I think it's my favorite thing I've ever taught. So, really, really stoked about it. And if you missed the boat in August, go ahead and and enter yourself to win. You'll know by the end of September. And may the luckiest reviewer win. Okay, with that, let's get into the episode. Jessica, welcome to the 12th house. We're so excited to have you. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. You have no idea. I see a beautiful little tattoo poking out from your adorable tie-dye. Can you tell me more about it? Please?
1: Yeah, actually, it's very apropos. It is one of nine stars that go down my back. It's the Leo constellation because I'm a Leo.
0: Yes. <laughs> okay. Now things are starting to come together for me. I love your Leo attitude. <laughs> Thank you. Is astrology something you strongly subscribe to?
1: Not particularly. I think I've gone through phases in my life where like, I've really identified with being a Leo and... But like for most of my life, I didn't go past my sun sign. I feel like in the past couple of years, I'm like, oh, I have a moon sign. I have a rising sign. I'm like learning more about it, but like kind of just the basics.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, I have other elements in my personality. Yeah. Can-
1: this makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like downloaded the Chani app hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like my my go to resource now. She knows my rising. She knows my sun sign, my moon sign and tells me what to expect every day. Like that's that's enough for me.
0: I think that's good. And I, I think also probably for you, Jessica, because you're a writer and creative, your Mercury sign might be helpful to know.
1: I will have to check that out. I don't know it off the top of my head.
0: <laughs> I find it really interesting because I'm we make content here. Yeah. So that's important for us too. And my Mercury is an Aquarius. And although I'm like all water and feelings, mm-hmm. Aquarius is kind of just like, well, I said what I said. Did I stutter? Why are you mad? <laughs> like, I just said the truth. Like, why are you upset about it? Yes. And I, that's always kind of been my communication style mm-hmm. and I haven't been able to like make it make sense with all my big three. And when I learned that, I was like, oh,
1: there it is.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I all clicks. I just want to ask you when you work at beauty publications or when you write articles, do you feel like you're an outsider or do you feel like you are like with your people when you're published by a publication, like the Zoe report or mm-hmm. everywhere that you've written for.
1: I feel very much like an outsider. And I think that's because I and turned the beauty industry like pretty late in life for a mm. beauty writer. Like normally that's the kind of job you start right out of college or like you're doing internships during college and you're working your way up. I started freelancing when I was 28, I think. And at the time oh. I lived in Joshua Tree, California which is like out in the middle of nowhere. So I've always been remote. Like to this, Whoa. To this day I've only ever met like two of the editors I've written for in person.
0: Wow. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wait, walk me back to Joshua tree. How did you land there? Cause that's kind of not like a place that a lot of people live in full time. Mm-hmm. You have to definitely be a certain flavor of person to be like, yes. I'm hunkering down here. Yeah. I'm not
1: that flavor, which is why I'm not there anymore. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't, I really don't know. So I lived in LA for 10 years. And then when my ex-husband now and I got married, we were like ready to get out of the city. We've been here for so long. We don't want the hustle and bustle. We wanted something a little bit more quiet. And so we moved to Joshua Tree because it was like a pretty easy drive back into LA if we needed to be there for work. And we had a couple friends who lived there too, but it was just way too isolating mm-hmm. and like also probably not a great move after you just make a major life change to like abandon all of your friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I would go visit, but for me, it just wasn't a great place to live. Like I just imagined myself like wearing flowy dresses and finding enlightenment. And really, I just like sat on my couch alone and, and drank a bunch of wine and <laughs> no, I, I, need, I need more stimulation. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay.
0: Breaking in as a freelancer into the beauty space, it is not easy. Like it is not easy at all, especially if you don't have years of experience and I don't know, like the means to have an unpaid internship for many years. So Mm -hmm. I'm so curious, like, how did that work for you?
1: So it was kind of like a long and winding path. So before I was working in the beauty industry, I was working in like celebrity editorial. So it wasn't super far removed, but I had, again, always had these sort of like remote positions where I wasn't actually working for the magazine. Like for one of my first jobs in LA, I was working for this editorial agency that created content in LA for international magazines because we had like the celebrity access. So I was producing like cover shoots for Harper's Bazaar Arabia with Rihanna and Oh, wow. El- Mexico. El- Ohio. Yeah, it Yeah, it was super cool. But again, I didn't make those connections because everyone I worked with was tens of thousands of miles away. And I was like by myself in this random office building in LA. So it still felt very like I wasn't part of that industry. And then I got like a recruitment email from someone on LinkedIn randomly that ended up being for the Kardashian apps. Like, I don't know if you remember when they launched apps yes. in 2015. So yeah. I was... Yes, I launched them. I launched all five of them. <laughs> and then for like a year and a half, I was a ghostwriter for Chloe's app. And it was an amazing experience, but also super high pressure because you're like putting words yeah. in the mouth of the most famous women in the world. So it was not great for my stress levels or my skin. <laughs> and that eventually led me to like having some super duper skin issues, getting really fascinated with the skin and then being like, okay, I want to work in the beauty industry to help clear up some of this misinformation. So then I think when I started trying to freelance, I had a strong resume. Like they saw, oh, she came from writing for Khloe Kardashian. I'll give her a shot. So it wasn't as like hard to break into it as it might be.
0: That is such a great entry point. (laughs) And at least from what I read, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Seems like dismantle patriarchy and heteronormative beauty standards and eurocentrism, yes, and and appropriation and all the things that go with the oppressive aspects of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And the Kardashians are like kind of <laughs> the opposite of
1: that. <laughs> so yes. like um, with yeah. <laughs> right. that, yeah, like? I think that job really served its purpose for me, but I. At the time when I worked there, you know, when they were recruiting me, they didn't tell me who it was for at first. Like the person on the phone started describing the job and asking me some questions and then like throwing out random celebrity names to see what I thought of them. Be like, what do you think of Jennifer Aniston? What do you think of blah, blah, blah? And one of them was the Kardashians. And I answered truthfully. I was like, I think they're such strong businesswomen. I love what they're doing. They made an empire out of nothing. And at the time I really admired them. And then I think maybe in being behind the scenes in immersing myself in the beauty industry and educating myself, really, I mean, like I was a very sheltered LA white woman. I didn't really understand the implications of like the standards that they were perpetuating and the Mm. beauty appropriation that they were doing and that I was writing about. And I think having that sort of inside access later when I was ready to really start looking at those things within myself and like dismantling these ideals within the beauty industry just gave me maybe a sort of empathy for that and an understanding mm. of why we all do the things we do in the name of beauty and how they can be harmful even if we don't intend to harm. The specifics of beauty standards and beauty norms will change constantly, but the one thing that's always the same is they are impossible and they are unattainable yes. by nature and you're never <laughs> gonna achieve it. You're never gonna get there. No matter what particular standard is set for you when you're growing up, it's, it's always gonna be unrealistic.
2: Mm. Absolutely. I love how you
0: connect beauty and power in the work that you talk about and that you write. And I'm still on this Kardashian thing. (laughs) You know, like, I think that there's like two ways to fight, to change power, right? To change like power dynamics. It's either to like sort of try and adopt and play the game and sort of rise in the ranks and then change once you're at the top change try to change an industry or a company or whatever
2: mm-hmm.
0: or it's the opposite it's to completely rebel against it to call it out to not play the game to refuse to play the game mm-hmm. and potentially like deal with the repercussions of that and it seems like you at this point in your life are like burn it down, <laughs> burn <whole> down. <laughs> yes but you're also with your your sort of of the beauty industry too. so yeah. like what is that dichotomy? feel like for you. Cause I think we kind of do the same thing at holisticism yeah. and personally, sometimes it can be just like almost dizzying, right? Of like, oh, do I even like want to be in this industry if I don't like so much of
1: it? Uh huh. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm like going through that so hard right now. It's true. Sometimes it feels so impossible to push up against it. You're like, why am I even trying? I think for me, it's very important to deconstruct. There can be no construction without deconstruction. The whole beauty industry is built on this really awful foundation of what I see as four main forces of patriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism. Like That is the foundation the industry is built on. The industry didn't create all of these standards and all of these things, but it capitalizes on them. You know, it's built on them and we can try to make the industry better. And I think in the past, especially year or so that the industry itself has really tried to be more inclusive, to be less prescriptive. You know, people aren't using anti-aging anymore. They're promoting a more diverse idea of what, what is beautiful, but I truly don't think you can really change or better an industry if you're not tackling that foundation. Because ultimately, what are you building? You're building a better industry on a still very shitty foundation. So, I mean, I see both sides of it. And it is really hard, especially as a woman, to divest from beauty culture, because it does have real world impacts on our lives. So I have a lot of compassion for that. And I have a lot of compassion for people who don't really want to divest, who want to hold on to that sense of power through beauty instead of dismantling the idea that we need beauty to have power Mm. so yeah it's it's a constant balance between you know wanting to tell the truth and wanting to inspire people to like not be a part of this industry anymore and then also acknowledging where that's really hard and acknowledging that the beauty industry is a huge source of economic power for women like women start businesses women are hairstylists women are nail techs you know so to dismantle that industry you bring in all of these other economic issues and it feels overwhelming.
0: Yeah. I feel like I've also seen, I've seen you get some pushback from that perspective, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are so many female founders or women founders or LGBTQIA, like, right. Mm -hmm. There's so much representation. It feels um, like a somewhat much more equitable than maybe finance. Right. Mm -hmm. So is this really something we should be attacking and man, you have, I wish that I had the armor that you have. I see what people oh like <laughs> I'm so impressed with you because like I feel like the the some of the comments that I see on your Instagram are I'm
1: like, whoa, that is that is wild that someone is saying that to another person on the internet. Wow. Thank you. That's very validating to hear because sometimes I feel like I'm overreacting and I'm being super sensitive. But you know you're not people say <laughs> shitty stuff. And you're a person. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing the internet has done is made it really easy to not see other people as people.
2: What's your perspective on women trying to talk about and take back that power through? I was just thinking of the model, Emily Radic. I always forget her last name. Radikowski, I think so. Yeah, like what do you think of what she's doing with her photo and her NFT?
1: Michelle rolls her eyes. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, I think what, what she stands for boils down to is personal empowerment versus collective empowerment. Yeah. And I think yeah. a huge problem with all of that kind of activism is that it frames one person's personal quest for empowerment as collective empowerment. And yeah. I think what Emily Ratajkowski is doing maybe empowering for her personally to you know feel empowered in her sexuality and show off her body it is not collectively empowering because it reinforces the standards that the patriarchy set for us. So there's really not much collective female empowerment to be had from just you know adhering to the standards that have already been set for you like it and that kind of work actually makes it harder for other people to break out of those because we're reinforcing these standards for ourselves. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Like if that's what empowers you personally, that's great. I think the danger is just in framing it as collective empowerment and as this path out of patriarchy because it's just, it's really not, you know do what you need to do personally, but like don't pretend it's this world changing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people see that and they see that yeah. she's personally empowered and they're like, oh, I want that too. And mm-hmm. it's easy to confuse that idea yeah. within your own self, even if the person isn't saying it like, oh, this is a path to empowerment. But it's like, well, do you want power within a patriarchal system or do you yeah. want a different system? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Those are the choices. You
0: nailed it. Absolutely. If you play the game that way, you're always relating to power and comparing your power to that of cis, hetero white men. So Mm -hmm. if that's what you want, if that's what you want to emulate, then like go off. But
2: IDK. I guess I feel a little bit suspicious or skeptical about having power outside of the system entirely. Like by totally negating
1: it in terms of beauty standards. This is something I have been grappling with as well. And I think what I have come to start to formulate for myself is that there is power within the world that humans have created. And then there's power within the world that created humans. And like, they're different. And that's why we have so much conflict. Because like with beauty, for example, beauty, I feel like is like this innate human, like drive or value, like beauty and freedom and justice Mm -hmm. and truth. And we want to express that we are driven as humans to express that. The tools that we have are not part of that world of freedom and truth and justice. The tools that we've been given are tools of the very limited human world that we created. So we're trying to express this like all-powerful source of beauty through eyeliner and blonde box hair dye (laughs) and it's not working and we're not satisfied. (laughs) So for me, I feel like I'm starting to accept that I might never feel super powerful within this like limited human world of capitalism and patriarchy, but Mm -hmm. I can feel personal power within the actual world that doesn't Mm -hmm. subscribe to these like random rules that we made up. I know that's very kind of wishy-washy, but No, I was
2: just thinking about innate worthiness Mm -hmm. of just your value as a human being for just existing. Yes, exactly. Jessica, what you said was so
0: beautiful. Trying to pretend that neuroaesthetics aren't a thing, that humans aren't innately drawn to and changed truly physiologically changed by their environment and what they see, it seems like a fool's errand. And I think that sometimes that's the argument often with beauty standards is like, like whatever, it doesn't matter. But we really, and also shitting on people who want beautiful things or who want a beautiful world Mm -hmm. or who feel, feel something that they can't necessarily, necessarily articulate when their surroundings are, beautiful or natural or whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like what we come up against, right? Is, is that we, we feel like this innate draw to the natural beauty. We want to use the word beauty. And Mm -hmm. yet we also feel like we need to like burn that idea down, or we dismiss that idea as like vapid when Mm -hmm. in reality that may not be true. And it seems like either the either or thinking that we are, trapped in, in capitalism, right. Of like,
1: you can't be multidimensional. You have to be one or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've expanded our consciousness. We've learned so much. And what have we done with all of this knowledge is we've turned it back on our physical bodies of like, how can we Mm -hmm. manipulate the physical, you know, vessel that I'm in? And it's like, what if we took that capacity for like memorizing a list of beauty ingredients and what a retinol and vitamin C serum do when they combine. And we just, Channeled that into the world in a more meaningful way. I don't know. Yeah. No, 100%. I
0: think about years, years when I was like a teenager in my mid 20s, where I had so much of my brain wrapped around counting calories and knowing the calorie count of like every single food and knowing where in New York I could eat and like so much of my attention span was caught up in that and how much I could have done. Wow. Could I have like, cured cancer <laughs> if, I, right. if I like wasn't thinking about that what was in a Starbucks venti caramel macchiato mm-hmm. like who fucking cares that mm-hmm. we live in this world that perpetuates that and, it, and obviously oppresses the people who have to adhere to beauty standards which is kind of all of us right,
2: right. I can feel on the outside in my friend group of having zero capacity to remember anything about skincare <laughs> I can't remember that's great if I don't even know what a retinoid does. I've tried so hard to remember. And all I do right now is put Walita skin food on my face. And I'm like,
1: that's all I can do. And you know what? You have glowing skin. You don't need to know all of that stuff. (laughs) Live in blissful ignorance, please. (laughs) For the rest of us. (laughs) Last. I think
2: one of your last newsletters that was talking about retinoids and the ugly side of it.
1: Yeah. What I mentioned in that newsletter was like, there's a phase when you start using retinol or any sort of prescription retinoid, they call it the retinoid uglies, where your skin just like freaks out and you get breakouts and it flakes off of your face and you're just like red and irritated for like two weeks to a month. And everyone's like, that's a sign it's working. That's a sign it's working. It's like that's gaslighting. Like that's a sign that your skin is injured. <laughs> it's hurting. It is in pain. It wants you to stop. <laughs> No,
2: any product where it's like, it's worse before it gets better. Maybe I just don't have the patience mm-hmm. for the worst part. I Do not consent and to that. And you shouldn't. <laughs> I
0: support that. Yeah, I support that decision. You, you wouldn't do that in a relationship. You wouldn't be like, you know what? It right. kind of has to be really bad before. It, that's called an abusive relationship, my friend. And you should get out of it. Yeah. Yes. I've had so many friends actually have like a quarter life crisis in a good way where they've gone back to esthetician school or to, they want to like take care of people and take an embodiment practice or become holistic facialists. And all of them are like, you know, products are kind of whack, like products don't really, you don't really need them. It's just like, yeah, you don't really need anything. Your skin knows what to do. Mm-hmm. And it is fascinating to ha- for them yeah. to have that education. And then also say, but now I have to go use products on people as part of a skincare regimen.
2: But right. then it's also fear-mongering because it's like, oh, you don't need it now. Just like the fertility industry. It's like, you you don't need it now, but if you want to start preventing aging, whatever that even actually means, you, you better start now.
1: That's That's a comment that I get all the time because I am very much like, you don't need products. You can stop using everything and your skin will still do everything that skin is meant to do. It might not like conform to the exact beauty standard you want it to conform to, but your skin will be functioning skin without all of the products. And the biggest criticism I come up against is, but your skin only does that when you're young, when you're old, it doesn't do that anymore. And it's just not the truth. That's another just fake thing that has been conditioned within us to believe that aging is a problem and aging is a disease. And, Mm. you know, it's, that's just what older skin does. And it's still worthy skin. It's still fine skin. Your skin cells are actually the only cells in the body that don't have a hayflick limit to how much they can reproduce. So, No matter how old you are, your skin will always protect you. It will keep reproducing. And it might not like look like somebody's Botox skin, but that's not the point of skin. (laughs) The point of skin is to protect you and your skin will like always do that even if you're like 142 years old.
0: Quick little break for our sponsor, Open. Open is a digital mindfulness studio for everyone. And I was kind of expecting it to be like every other digital mindfulness app and meditation app out there. But when I logged in for my first class, it was honestly like, nothing else I'd ever experienced. It was a phenomenal experience. It is so unexpected and delightful. And it's also a beautiful background experience. The vibes and the aesthetics are immaculate and it makes you feel immediately like, oh, I'm in the right place. I can breathe. Classes are available in the open app and on the desktop. There are fresh classes every day. So you can take on-demand classes or you can take live classes. You can get started with your meditation or breath work or just morning self-care, afternoon self-care, whenever you want self-care routine. And you get your first 30 days for free when you join using the code HOLISTICISM at checkout. We'll put a link below in our show notes. So if you want to meditate with us and really take advantage of that group sesh vibe, It's really fun to meditate together because accountability, but you just got to try it. Truly go look at it. It will blow your mind. And I can't wait to hear what you think. So I'll see you in class. Yeah, that's such a great point that you draw the line between aging as a disease. That's like what the people Mm -hmm. who are like looking for infinite life, sort of like biohackers beyond who believe that we can like take our our brains and like implant them in a robot or something right. level consciousness, like, well, what if aging is just a disease and the, and death is like the symptom of aging. I find that to be horrifying. <laughs>
1: for no, so- I mean, that is way more terrifying than actually <laughs> aging and dying. Uh, please. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the alternative, give me death.
2: Yeah. Right. That's so much, not only about how we view ourselves within the standard of beauty but how we treat the elderly in our society mm. and the lack of respect that we have for the elderly and for the most part they're kind of unseen in many ways and it's right. like you cease to exist past a certain age especially in Hollywood
1: and that's why we're so terrified of it because we know that our society does not treat its elderly members any sort of like love or compassion And it all kind of comes back to productivity mindset. Like we discard Mm. our older members because they're no longer productive members of the capitalist economy. And in that way, performing beauty is a form of of productivity in and of itself. Mm.
0: Right. Whoa, that's wild.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh my
0: gosh. Jessica, there's this great book. I'm I'm sure you've heard of it, but it's called Women, Witches and Witch Hunting. I have Um, not. It's by Sylvia. Okay, it's by this Italian socialist author, Silvia Federici, and it's a series of essays. She's an incredible, she's a genius. And she talks about the primitive accumulation Mm -hmm. and the reason that women were hunted as witches, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. uh, was because they were often elderly, independently wealthy, and they like didn't want to give up their land and they weren't working, right? They weren't like productive members of society, Mm -hmm. or sometimes they were taken care of by the community because they were elderly, because that's how we used to work. And capitalism was like, we got to get rid of these old people, Mm -hmm. these old witches. And so that's where the witch hunts came from. And, And that, if that's not like,
1: man, that's the origin of beauty standards, it right? It really is. And then I always see that like transition from feudalism to capitalism. So women are now like the makers of the, the capitalist workers. Baby okay. makers. Yep. So that all sort of changed in the 1960s when women started entering the workforce. And this it was, again, this sort of like new world order where now women's economic value shifted from being homemakers to because they were also in the workforce, their economic value to beauty. And so all of these laws started getting introduced in the 60s and 70s. It was like a second witch hunt, where if you Mm -hmm. weren't a certain weight, or you didn't adhere to a certain style of dress, or you didn't wear makeup, you could literally be fired from your job. And courts were upholding these laws. It became this thing where if you wanted to work, if you wanted to be a working woman, you also had to be a beautiful woman. Like stewardesses are a great example of Mm -hmm. this. And it was like upheld legally by law because women were no longer investing their purchasing power in the homemaking economy. So Mm -hmm. what are they going to do now? You have to create a beauty economy. And this is really where beauty standards started to kick in because- we had to find another place to get women to spend their money because they weren't spending it on their kids and their vacuums. Oh, that is maddening. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm thinking about a bunch of the brands that I follow and how much 70s style has come back. And, and just this ideal American beauty has really made a comeback. And how that's also in conjunction with a huge wave towards moving away Mm -hmm. from that. And these equally opposing forces are running in parallel. I didn't know that those laws were introduced in the sixties, but it makes
1: so much sense. That's really interesting parallel that I haven't thought about yet, but like, you're right. Yeah. Sixties, seventies fashion and and aesthetic is huge right now. Yeah. That's such an interesting point. That's also when the ugly feminist became a trope. And that was sort of a way for beauty standards to be used as a weapon. It's like, oh, you want your own power? Well, you're ugly. And like, what's worse mm-hmm. than being ugly in a world that like literally financially and socially values you for your beauty? So mm-hmm. there's a there's a lot happening in that time period.
0: Oh, woman, as a millennial, I don't know if this is just me, but I felt like I had to pick between either be smart or conform to heteronormative beauty standards and in order to have people take me seriously. And Mm. I I had a really interesting experience when I was fundraising for holisticism because that's the thing about like having, for anyone who experiences marginalization and don't get me wrong, I'm incredibly privileged. I'm a white cis hetero woman in her thirties. Like I've got a lot of privilege on my side, but I think anyone who experiences marginalization is constantly wondering did I not get that thing because of the identity that I hold? Mm -hmm. Because I look a certain way, because I didn't show up exactly in the same way that white men do. And so we kind of gaslight ourselves into being like, is this because of the way I look or the way that I am? or, Or is it actually because I'm not talented enough or skilled enough for that job or that role? When I was fundraising from investors, I wanted to see what it would be like if I changed the way I wore my hair, if I wore makeup, if I wore a dress versus pants versus a pantsuit. And I met with probably a hundred investors. I kept voice memos after every meeting. And I definitely experienced like outright misogyny. And I also had women investors tell me, if you look like that, you should be wearing a dress and you should be talking to every man that you possibly can. But when I looked at all the data afterwards... I got the best results like when I wore a jumpsuit which was like somewhat form fitting but not form fitting sort of like fashion forward when I had my hair pulled back that I had and I had like light makeup on but my like makeup was done and I did not wear lipstick and I was wearing like either Nike's like or just cl- sort of classic like pump that was when both gender, all genders took me the most seriously. Wow! And uh, it was very interesting. That
1: is, that's fascinating. What my mind immediately goes to with like the light makeup and the sort of form fitting jumpsuit and all of that is that, okay, this woman plays by the rules a little bit. She knows how much she has to put in as a woman, but you're not, you're far enough away that you're not in the stereotype of Dumb woman! I just want to get some money for my wellness business. Exactly. That's so fascinating.
0: Yeah, that was kind of the conclusion I drew as well. That when I was fashion forward enough, people were like, "Okay, you know something
2: I don't Mm -hmm. (laughs) because like
0: if that that seems like it's a trend forward. Also, I can like kind of see that you're you're you know you're like in good shape or whatever according to patriarchal standards. So okay, fuckable. And like, you take care of yourself enough. And that's respectful to me mm, yeah. because wow. like, I don't know. I think people often are centering themselves. Right. And it's, we, every interaction we have, we are projecting onto. Mm. So it was really interesting. Whoa.
1: I love that you collected data and analyze that. Like, wow. <laughs> <I did. laughs> it? so it's on <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. That's incredible. <laughs> I think there's also something to be said for the fact that we are physical beings in physical bodies that like just inherently as humans we should take care of and we should love up on and we shouldn't like just ignore And I also think there's a big difference between adornment and concealment. So like Mm -hmm. things like fashion, a lot of the time I see that as adorning myself or like a beautiful piece of jewelry. I see that as adorning myself, sometimes even a lipstick, but like something like foundation or concealer, I'm not adorning myself there. I am hiding Mm. myself. I'm hiding something about myself. So to me, like that kind of stuff doesn't feel like self-expression. That feels like self-rejection. And it's really hard because like the beauty and fashion and wellness industries have fucked us up so much about what it means to like be healthy and and totally. express ourselves like to ride that line between I don't want to give into these ideals, but I do want to give my body the like love and attention it deserves.
0: Is there ever any validity in exploring a new character or identity and concealing in that way?
1: Yes, I think there is... De- Depending on your motivations, like, so for a story, once I interviewed this makeup historian and I was like really interested to find out like how, you know, makeup trends evolved and stuff. And I was coming from this point of view. So the point of my story, it never got published, maybe someday, was why does (laughs) does putting on makeup make us feel human? You know, after Mm, the pandemic, people were like, oh, I put on my foundation today. I felt like a human again. I'm like, but you were more human before (laughs) that. Like, (laughs) what are you talking about? (laughs) So I really wanted to, like, get to the heart of that question. And something that this historian pointed out was, like, that's part it's part of community like that's how makeup originated was it was not something you did for yourself it was something you did to express yourself for the benefit of others to signal your role in a community just to, to mm. be part of like some sort of like religious ceremony a ritual and- yeah, exactly. And it always meant something. And it was always meant to be seen by others. It wasn't just, you know, oh, I'm doing this for me. Like makeup was never meant to be just for you. It's it's part of community building. So like one example is if you are really into like punk makeup and you do the big black eyeliner and the dark lipstick and the pale skin powdered, like that's not necessarily concealing yourself it can be but it can also be signaling that I am part of this community and this is who I am and these Mm. are the people that I want to find me Mm. it just like comes down to you have to be honest with yourself about your intentions and
0: yeah makeup to me and skincare and just like the form Always represented, how do I want people to perceive me and understand me better? Mm -hmm. Because I don't feel like I am understood. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the only chance I get 99% of the time is to change this external part of me Mm -hmm. so that people can see from a mile away who I am, that I'm good, that I'm spiritual, that I'm whatever Mm -hmm. it is, right? And I think with the sort of like generation that's grown up on Instagram and branding ourselves as, identities or archetypes or characters that comes through even more. And I'm so curious to see what will happen as we have these we've even ha- seen like brands evolve or individual brands evolve over t- the last five years as like personal blogging has blown up on Instagram. I'm so curious to see how that will shift in addition to the way that we're filtering our faces or how we're getting plastic surgery that isn't always reversible and what's going to happen there. Like so much of what we are doing is just perceiving. Mm -hmm. We're not able to go deeper. So how is this going to change media and how we interact with each other?
1: Right. To me, that kind of comes back to what we were talking about before of like conforming to beauty standards or divesting from them. It's like, well, we know we live in this world where people are constantly perceiving us and we are being judged by what we look like. So how much do we kind of, you know, surrender to that system and say, okay, I'm going to put this time and energy into cultivating my appearance because I know I'm being perceived this way. And I want to make sure I'm being perceived the right way. And how much energy do we put into like, you know, Telling people like, hey, we don't have to just physically perceive each other. Mm. (laughs) There are other ways to perceive. (laughs) energetically perceive me, man. (laughs) Honestly, though.
0: (laughs) For real. And also like just individually. I mean, I talked to my therapist about this a lot of like, I can't control how other people perceive me no matter what. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I can try all the things I can try.
1: And they're still
0: going to think what they want to think about me.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. And then it's like, well, how much do you want to connect with that person who was dead set on perceiving you based on like Mm -hmm. your shade of foundation and the size of your eyebrows? Like, is that somebody that you care about perceiving you? I don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. We can't really extricate beauty and beauty standards from, they're not singular. They're not just in their own little bubble it's all. So I could again, talk about this forever, but I want to talk about the way that you've sort of changed directions to being your own publisher. I feel like you have like this uncensored voice that every time I'd read articles on that you'd written at other spaces, I'd be like, I feel like they really edited this article down from what she wanted it <laughs> to be. <laughs> like, I want to read it before the edit. Oh my God. Is that, Maybe I'm reading into that, but yeah. I'd love to hear how that process has been for oh you. Oh my gosh. No, you're not
1: reading too much into that. That's like, exactly. <laughs> it's been really interesting. So I started self-publishing really right at the pandemic. So I had these four stories that I had been trying to get published forever stories that I was like really passionate about. They were a little bit controversial, but I was like, they, there are things that are important to talk about. I had pitched most of them for like over a year and finally a publication bought them all. I was like, yes.
2: Amazing.
1: And then the pandemic started and they fired all of their freelancers. They gave me a kill fee for all of the pieces and they no. were like, we're not publishing these.
2: What yeah. I want to know, I'm like, what are they? Can you even say what they were about? Yeah,
1: well, because I self-published them afterwards. Oh, but good. but Great. first I shopped them around. I spent three months, I think, from like March to June yeah. shopping these pieces around sending them to every possible publication I could think of like they were already finished pieces I was ready to take a really low fee like I just wanted them out into the world and nobody would publish and them. you're a
0: really well-known writer you're Thank a very you. well-known yeah. beauty writer yeah you're the only beauty writer that I probably know off the top of my head oh. at this moment in time oh
1: that's exciting so. to hear yes. <laughs> yeah so I was like kind of I mean I knew we were in an economic crisis and a pandemic but like I was kind of shocked that nobody would publish these because of the controversy factor. Like I know they weren't like not well written or anything, you know, like right, it was right. because of the controversy factor. I was like, you know what, I guess I'm just going to start my own newsletter or something and publish them myself. And the first piece I published was called where all the Brown hands. And it yeah. was an investigation into the nail care industry and how all the top nail care companies didn't have one brown or black hand anywhere on their instagram feeds or their wow. or their websites modeling the nail polish shades and it blew up like people had a great response to it and then a month later sort of this racial reckoning happened you know george floyd was murdered all these industries had to reckon with the total and complete whiteness of their marketing materials their instagram feeds and that story started recirculating again and it got brought back to the top and actually dazed beauty republished it and did like a story Mm. on it without telling Mm. me they like wrote Ah. a story on it and i was like i pitched it to you (laughs) i wanted you to publish this and you said no but now that it's cool now that everyone's doing it now that you have to look at the diversity in the beauty industry oh, you're going to write a feature on it. Cool. And that happened with like multiple, multiple publications. And yeah, I mean, obviously it's like a a tragic and touchy subject, but that kind of gave me this hint that like I'm on the right path and these things do need to be talked about. And whether I bring them up now or I wait for them to reach a fever pitch and people can't help but write about them, like they're going to be talked about at some point. So I might as well just start publishing the Mm -hmm. things I feel passionately about because I feel passionately about them for a reason. And it has been kind of liberating to not have to worry about the editor, the brand relationships, the PR teams who are involved, the pushback. You know, I don't have to deal with any of the politics of beauty media. So that's been great.
0: <laughs> What's it been like to transition to kind of being your own boss in that way and, and have being a creator that basically has patrons?
1: Right. So it's never, it would never was my plan to just do this. Like I want to get back into writing for publications as well, because my goal is to have the the biggest impact on the beauty industry. I'm not like so attached to like, I need to have my name and my words and exactly the way I want. Like I want to create change and part of creating change is being on bigger platforms with bigger reaches than my own. Part of self-publishing has been that I'm currently writing my book. It's due in like a couple of weeks and it's been really hard to balance. cannot publish- wait for this. I I, so exciting. I cannot wait to be done with it because it is hard. (laughs) It's hard to write a book. Who knew? Uh (laughs) But yeah, so self-publishing has given me that sort of freedom to Kind of feel supported within my community, mm-hmm. and not have to constantly be hustling for jobs and like convincing people that my work is worthy of publishing. Like I have a whole community of people who like already think my work is worthy of publishing and have prepaid for it because they know it's worthy of publishing. So that feels really good. Feels like a lot of pressure off. I'm going to continue doing it. But that being said, like it's not gonna. I don't ever want it to be my only thing. Like I I want to keep mm-hmm. creating change in the beauty industry at like multiple levels
0: you're really like a visionary i think that at least from where i said it's it can be very difficult to be someone who's visionary like you because you're always this much ahead of everyone else and people are like what no that's not it. And then you're like, I just wait six months. I promise Like, what what I'm saying is going to make sense to you. And it can feel like you're almost like gaslighting yourself all the time being like, why doesn't anyone understand and see the way that I, the world that I see. And then eventually they do. So I would say everyone listening, Jessica's one to watch for sure. (laughs) She's a visionary. And I love that you followed your own intuition around like, you know what, I need to like make a platform that supports my work because I don't know. Actually, this is a conversation for another time, but I don't know if journalism and the way that the editorial space ecosphere exists right now, I don't know if true journalism and writing can go hand in hand with that because most editorial beauty content is about selling shit.
1: It really is.
0: That's sort of the thesis I feel like of your work, which is the beauty industry is here to sell us more shit Mm -hmm. that we don't actually need. And what do we do with that?
1: What's really interesting though, is that I think there is this big anti-capitalist, anti-consumerist wave happening. And in order to stay relevant, these publications are going to have to start creating some of that content, even if it's just a little taste here and there to show that they're not out of touch. And that's kind of, I feel has been the case my whole career. Like I have been so shocked at what some of these publications do allow me to get away with, like at the start of the pandemic, I wrote a piece for Vogue that was just like, stop using all of your skincare. I was like, wait, I can't believe they let me publish this. I feel the same. I don't think things are going to continue the way that they have been continuing, but I do think that some publications are going to adapt and start pairing back on the product centric messaging because they need to, if they want to survive.
0: That's the way the world's moving. It'll be interesting. <laughs> Jessica, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for making the time for us. I so appreciate
1: oh it. How can people support you and find you and, and buy the book? Yeah, so the book is a ways away. It's not going to be out until May, 2022. So stay tuned, okay. but you can find me on Instagram at Jessica Defino underscore, or you can sign up for my sub stack. It's com, And that's my newsletter. Perfect. We'll put it in the show notes. It is so good. It's so good. (laughs) Thank you.
2: Sweet.
0: Awesome. And that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into this podcast in this episode. And I hope that you loved it. And I can't wait to hear what you think. So tag us on Instagram at Holisticism. Take a screenshot. Let us know what you love or maybe what you disagree with. That's okay too. And Thanks for listening. You guys are the best. Love you so much. We'll see you on the internet. Okay, bye.